Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Muckrake Podcast. I am uh, on my own. Jared is not with us today, but I am extremely lucky. And this is Nick Halsman, by the way. Uh, and I'm extremely lucky to have as our special, special guest, Pete Dominic, who is a comedian and host of Stand Up with Pete Dominic, his daily podcast of which you should all be listening to and tuning in. And he's also uh, the warm-up comedian for Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. So, uh, Pete, maybe you can get me warmed up as well right now. It's a little bit chilly over here in L.A. Yeah, you're not alone. I'm right here, buddy. I'm right here with you. Thank you very much for having me, Nick. I uh, I, I think, uh, yeah, Jared is lost in the woods. I am uh, I'm taking his place. He's, a, he's irreplaceable, but I hope he gets lost for a long time because I like talking to yeah. him. Well, listen, we I, we don't want to speak ill of anybody behind their back, but um, I'm looking very forward to having this conversation one on one, so I don't have to share the mic with anybody else because you're you know you you're too too valuable to be shared with anybody else. So, um, <laughs> yes, go ahead. Uh, nobody really thinks that, but I I am flattered. I appreciate that. Well, hey, listen, that, that's why you're here. I'm here. We got to talk about some stuff. Um, on, on a serious note, uh, we had uh, five officers charged um, with the brutal killing uh, after pulling over uh, Tyree Nichols. And I thought we would discuss that a little bit and figure out, you know, what you felt about that. And, you know, if, if there's ever going to be a way to stop having this from happening. I think it's a really very very, very intractable problem in America, especially the idea of police violence and brutality in general, not only against black bodies and not only killings, but just corruption and violence. And I mean, I've been the subject to police violence like three, four times in my life. And I'm a white guy. I feel like we don't talk enough about how too often law enforcement is abusive to, to everybody. And I, I, there's, there's so much that we need to discuss about this because the issue has been happening for years, but obviously in marginalized communities, especially in black minority communities in this country, policing is, is done much differently. And of course there's a huge history there and it's really tough to challenge Nick because the police union is so, so strong in your town and at elections and as a lobby. And if you want to get legislation passed at the local, state or federal level, you somehow have to work with or get around the police union or the PBAs. And it's just so, as I think people understand, really difficult to get around that, much less work with them to get something meaningful done. And a lot of people think something meaningful would be to completely reform the system and even abolish law enforcement the way it is right now and, and, and remake it in a more progressive uh, or, you know, appropriate way that fits our times. You know, I was thinking about this because I was a teacher in the high school, in a, you know, big public high school in L.A. in my late 20s. This would have been, you know, late 90s and, and talking to the kids about how how they felt when they saw a cop car come around the corner, even like in the vicinity of where they were, not even like closer or that thing. And, you know, a lot of the kids well, I'm teaching were minorities and they were all to a T would, would describe being scared and nervous and not being able to feel comfortable at all when they would appear. And it was strange to me at that point in my life. And at that point, I think in our country, before we had so many cell phone cameras and just the, the sheer evidence that we now know, I'm sure we, we know was happening this whole time in our country. Um, I, I'm concerned because no matter what you want to argue about what happened in this specific case, nobody should be getting killed for a traffic violation. I yeah. think this is the biggest issue that drives me 
insane is that th th these are the things that they are, are leading that the escalation is uncontrollable with the way they're being trained. And I suspect that a lot of times these cops are getting off because when they look back at how they process it, they're going to say, oh, that's the training. They were simply following the training. And that in that way, they're immune from any prosecution. Yeah, well, I mean, to some extent, the, the training is a huge part of the problem. I mean, the problem is at the root, of course, but the, the entire law enforcement system, the training that goes into it. I mean, a lot of times, a lot of communities, there's a great documentary about the militarization of police years ago, I think 2016, uh, called Do Not Resist by Craig Atkinson. People should go watch that. But I mean, they're training these police officers, Nick, to treat the public like they are terrorists, like they are the enemy. And instead of serving and protecting the people that they're policing, they are dehumanizing and, and, and treating them like enemy and, and, and militarizing police around the country. And that is a huge part of the problem. But, you know, talking about the difference between, let's say, white communities or more suburban, more affluent communities and a lot of black communities, even ones that are affluent or upper middle class is the experience that you talked about. I mean, I used to do a joke in my stand-up ad. They're just talking about the difference of, of the white community. When I was little, remember when we, we played with guns when we were little that looked very, very real. Remember they had wooden stocks and black barrels. They looked real. And mm -hmm. when the cops in my neighborhood would see me out there with a real-looking gun, they wouldn't stop me and shoot me or yell at me. They would walk up to me and tell me how to hold it better. You know, like they we were friends with them. They weren't didn't see us as an enemy to them. And we didn't see them that way either. And I think it's it, it, it's worth always reminding white folks who are listening what it's like through the lens of many in the black community. Ellie Mistal tweeted <clears throat> over the weekend about this. Uh, the the black uh, judicial correspondent, Harvard lawyer from MSNBC, The Nation magazine, Ellie, Ellie tweeted, I feel like people who are surprised that the cops who did this are black are about to learn a part of the talk that my parents at least always emphasized. The race of a cop is cop. Never be under the illusion that a black cop is less likely to brutalize you or kill you. And there's been just so much written about about that. And it's really hard, I think, for white folks to understand not only how black folks see and live in this world, but certainly specifically how they see law enforcement. Absolutely. And I grew up in Chicago in the city. So we, we were sort of well aware of, you know, there's I mean, there's a long lineage of like there's sort of like the Irish influence of the Chicago cops yeah. and, and how they would appoint themselves and, and oversee themselves that way. And uh, even into like from the 68 uh Democratic convention and the riots that they were having at um, in, in um, Grant Park, like we, it was always sort of in the DNA. These cops were gonna were not gonna follow, you know, the the, the basic tenets uh, to get to to prosecute a case or to investigate. And we've seen these movies even right where all that you see the rife uh, um, the corruption in the in the you know police like Dog Day Afternoon. Oh, sorry, not Dog Day, the uh, Serpico, right, New York. Right. But they've never really done one in Chicago. But the point being that, like, we were sort of aware of this to some degree. And I think what what hits at home and it's the same thing that turned everyone against Vietnam, for instance, is that when you finally have video footage and you can see exactly what is going on here, uh, this is where we start to realize how corrupt it is and it can turn folks, uh, you know, change their minds. Have you seen the footage that was released over the weekend? You know, it's funny you ask that because I, I haven't. I almost always watch this stuff. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, I watch violence on the Internet. I, I watch it all the time. Because of the way that these videos were posted and they were really long and they were released over the weekend, 
you know, I was like, I'm not watching this, this long, awful, horrible, brutally violent video. I'm not watching on the weekend. I usually take the weekends off of news because I cover news for a living as much, so as much as I can, I turn it off. So I wasn't going to watch that. I haven't watched it, but I don't need to watch it. You know, it's like a snuff film. Did you watch it? I did. Well, I mean, you know, there's a couple different pieces. One is when they're already kind of trying to yank him out of the car. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think that there's the footage. I don't see it where he gets away. You know, they kind of yanked him out of the car. They're going to try and like tase him or something. And he runs and then they chase him, which is where a lot of the conservative people and, you know, you could say white conservative people will say all bets are off. You're going to run. You can get shot. You're going to get killed. Doesn't really matter. And it won't be. It'll be justified. And you know, when you realize what's when you take a step back and look at the whole thing here and who this guy was, what was going on, uh, you know, he, he was yards from his mom's house. He was he was actually just trying to get to his mom's house. He was calling out for his mom and they're just taking turns beating the shit out of him, you know, hitting him, punching him over and over again. Five cops while he is well, completely dazed and out of it. The statistics around cops chasing people and getting in an accidentally killing innocent bystanders. People should look into them because they're absolutely horrific. And, you know, you can understand anybody saying, like, listen, if this guy just steals a watch from the watch store, the jewelry store or anything else. And, the, and, and, and you know, cops are chasing him. Some, the cops, you can't just do that. Cops got to be able to chase you. And I think that I think that law enforcement has to be able to have the ability to make a judgment call. And in this case, if someone's not dangerous and they run away, you know what? Let him go. You got his car. You got his license plate. Let the guy go because you could chase him in your in your patrol car or even on foot and you could accidentally kill somebody. And it's something that happens quite often in this country. Police chasing people that don't need to be chased is a dangerous idea and a horrible way to be killed, Nick, or injured. You're just walking home with your groceries or something. Mind your own business with your kid in a stroller and some patrol car comes flying around the corner chasing a guy because, you know, he stole a gallon of milk. It's it's not the way we should do things. And that's all tied up with with ego. And you, how dare you run away from me? I'm the authoritarian policeman. Forget all of that nonsense. That's not how it should work. And I think we should be able to have a conversation about that. But you can't even start to have a conversation about those types of reforms because of what I said earlier about the power of, of police union is very difficult. And, and I'm, I'm very pro union. I mean, unions are usually serve a very important that's function. Cool. Um, and you would think it would be reasonable to sit down and say, we need to kind of change going forward. Even we don't have to like, you know, go back and prosecute people after the fact, but we can go forward and say, we need to change these techniques. And, and you've, in fact, you'll see a lot of different, in different parts of the country. They, they do have those techniques, uh, you know, legislated out of the, of the thing, the chokeholds. I, and that I kind just of wanted stuff. to differentiate. I, I just want to say, yeah, it's, I, I appreciate you splitting the hairs on generally being pro labor, but the, it, you can support a, a union or a company. Uh, in this case, we're talking about, you know, uh, public sector unions, police officers unions up until the point of what it is, what it is building and what is creating and what it is protecting. And so even if it's a, you know, a, a, a union of fossil fuel, you know, coal miners, well, we don't, we hate coal, but these are people who are working in the coal mines and we, they should be able to advocate for as healthy uh, of a situation and wage benefits as possible. Same thing for teachers unions or private sector unions like the UAW, but, or nurses unions, but we're talking about a union that is protecting an organization 
that arguably, in my opinion, in the opinion of a lot of other Americans, is doing more damage than it is good. And it's not protecting people, endangering people. I'm I'm simplifying it for the sake of the argument. But I think that union is benefiting and advocating for, I think, a lot of things that are doing harm to the public. Oh, absolutely. And by the way, this it reminds me um, when you were talking about the, the race of the police's police. Um, you know, there was a white cop who was involved in this. Who, right. They, they, yeah, they, um, somehow they uh, they found the white guy that was also involved. It took a little while, but they got him too. Yeah. Yeah. But but not punished in the same way as the black cops were. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's um, I agree. I, I don't know. You know, and by the way, the chasing thing, it, you know, probably goes back to the origin of police in general when they're related to like slavery or post slavery. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sure. Yeah, the origins so, of modern day policing can be traced back to the slave patrol, which was created, you know, in the 1700s with one mission, which was to establish a system of terror, basically, and to to destroy any slave uprisings and have the capacity to pursue, apprehend, and return runaway slaves to their owners. I mean, people should read all about that. I just interviewed for my show uh, Kadada Williams, who's the author of a new book. She's a, a, a black history professor at Wayne State University. Her new book is I Saw Death Coming, A History of Terror and Survival in the War Against Reconstruction. Not to go off on too far of a tangent, Nick, but you said it. Absolutely. Um, now, what last before we move on to the next subject, I'm kind of curious. There were uh, demonstrations and people were really upset, um, but nothing uh, along the lines that we'd seen uh, in St. Louis uh, and other places around the country. So I'm wondering if you feel like there's a connection between the uh, race of the cops that were involved or or and or the fact that they were fired and there they are there seems to be some punishment for them uh, and and the in the severity of the demonstrations or the lack of severity of demonstrations. I think that I think that all those are fair and valid points. I think that, you know, as Tim Wise writes, white supremacy or anti-blackness are taught to everybody within the culture directly and indirectly. They always have been as such. Even black folks can, in certain cases, act to uphold systems of domination and subordination aimed disproportionately at other black people. So black cops don't give these kinds of, of beatings, he says, Tim says, to white people, no matter how those white people behave when they're encounter, encountered by black officers, which I think is a really interesting uh, point to to note. And everybody should read Tim Wise. But the other thing is, I think that the thing that changed this specific situation was that they immediately fired these guys. They immediately uh, made these tapes transparent. You have to wonder why they don't in so many other cases. I don't think it hurts that there's a black woman in charge of the police force there. And to some extent, perhaps the community thought that there would be more accountability with the fact that they addressed it pretty much uh, as soon as you know they possibly could. And I think that that matters. And, and a lot of these times, these protests are as a result of frustration that we know that they're dragging their feet. We know that they're letting these police officers get their, uh, you know, their defense ready. We know that they're not investigating. We know that they're finding ways to get around it. And in this case, this police department, not to defend them, but handling it quickly, I think probably diffused some of the emotion around it. But that's just me white explaining. Yes. Well, you know, the January 6th supporters want to point to the Black Lives Matter um, protests and how when they was got violent as, as equating the same thing. And I think that they also want to shade it in the sense that these are not really protesters. They're just people, opportunists who want to loot. That's sort of what they, I think they are saying in the, on the, behind the scenes. But I think what this proves is that it's anger. 
when we see violence break out in protests, it is directly related to the anger they feel for the injustice that's happening. Yeah. And perhaps in this one, when we do have justice and they've done it better than the other situations, uh, you don't have the exact kind of anger where then you don't have the violence. So it, it's never about like any kind of opportunists in looting. It literally is no, about the anger against injustice. Yeah, looting is as a result of chaos and in, in anywhere, you know, and but that's it's just a preposterous idea. I mean, the the riots around or riots, the protests around these types of incidents in every city and every community in the country over uh, generations of American life and civil rights and demands for equality and really forget equality, just ending violence on our neighborhood. This has been going on for the entire time that our country has been in existence, of course. And it is about a real injustice, a real abuse that is taking place in communities all across the country all the time. January 6th, of course, was about a fake injustice. It was about a thing that didn't happen. So generations of people in the streets demanding justice because of a real, actual, daily uh, situation versus the 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 screams and cries of fairly well off people apparently on January six because of a lie that they were told by their cult leader. I mean that's 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 the difference. If I believed that my the election was was stolen, I I would be in the streets as well. But I didn't believe that because I knew it didn't happen, and so it's a preposterous uh, idea to compare the two, and always will be. Well, you know, uh, this is the other thing we really want to talk about today, which was um, it, it's the appearance of some sort of corruption that can trigger people and, and, and yeah. shift mindsets very easily. And what we ended up seeing with um, like, for instance, when Trump wanted to shake down Zelensky in Ukraine, in Ukraine uh, and he asked him just to in, just to announce an investigation into Biden before the 2020 election, just, just announce it. You don't have to actually do anything. And that is enough. And when we see what happened recently in this revelations with the uh, with Bill Barr and John Durham's investigation of the investigators, mm-hmm. um, I, I think we see the same exact uh, method here where they simply wanted to cast doubt and give enough uh, uh, nuggets of uh, half a sentence here or there to someone like Sean Hannity to just simply shift the narrative enough in people who are already wanting to not believe that Trump was corrupt. Uh, and that was that was the point of these investigations, never to actually find anything and then waste, I suppose, all millions of dollars in our taxpayers money. Uh, it's been it's been so, so frustrating, so hard to watch this lack of, of, of justice so far, this this vacancy of indictments. And hopefully that will change. I, I really do believe that it that it will be. But it's been very hard. It's been painful to watch Bill Barr try to rehabilitate his reputation uh, post January 6th, basically. And uh, terrible to find out the how deep the corruption went. I mean, the Italians tried to tell Durham, who was investigating the FBI, basically. So Durham gets hired by Bill Barr to investigate the investigation to find out where the the FBI was surveilling the Trump campaign, et cetera. But they couldn't find anything because it wasn't a thing, of course. Of course, that wasn't happening. And instead, they go to, the, uh, to Italy and Bill Barr and John Durham are told by the Italian government that they should take a look at something else 
that was really stunning and important. We're just learning this is is this absolutely crazy, Nick. But that the Italian government uh, told Durham and Barr that uh, there was, I'm, I'm trying to look it up here, an explosive tip linking Mr. Trump to certain suspected financial crimes. And then they had to go investigate that, but we never knew about that. We never knew that they investigated the, that, and we finally have figured that. We finally just learned that. And seeing all these dots being connected, it's so hard. It's so, I mean, some things obviously were happening that, that are only now just being reported, and we're learning those as facts. And other things... Uh, make you think that we're we're going to learn so much more about all of these players in, in this between Manafort and Deripaska and now this FBI agent that I know you wanted to talk about as well. I mean, it's it's hard to follow. So people listening should feel uh, relief that it's hard to follow. But there's such a flood of real important corruption. And then, you know, finally, you've got all of these investigations, Nick. I mean, into the former president. In addition to January 6th, criminal investigation, classified documents, criminal investigation, Georgia election interference, criminal investigation, criminal investigation and Trump's alleged financial crimes in New York, criminal investigation surrounding his special purpose acquisition company and the criminal investigation of Trump's pre-election hush money payments. Remember that one, the porn star? And he's also facing a criminal investigation from Durham's special counsel probe. And this, this I'm not even talking about the civil disputes that are currently surround the former president. And so you are forgiven for not being able to follow this, but this isn't made up. These are real crimes being investigated by a real criminal, and it's it's really overwhelming for the public. And so I I'm done talking, but the point is it's I, I'm I'm relieving people of their uh, feelings of of confusion and overwhelmed at all of this. Yes, if only we could entertain and make him laugh. But there isn't a lot that's funny about this. We'll find something in there, I'm sure, because well, first of all. You, uh, Barr creates a special counsel to investigate, you know, the the investigation of the FBI, because obviously he remember he auditioned for this role by writing this ridiculous op ed uh, that said that the president can't be uh, prosecuted for like pretty much any crime he does while he's in office. And uh, and by the way, whatever we're doing with this uh, investigation of what Barr was doing, getting all this background, someone needs to ask a question about the Mueller report and find out why it just so happened that the Mueller report ends or his investigation ends about three weeks after Mueller uh, after Barr takes over. Right? Very interesting, very curious. And then he ultimately so mischaracterizes the report before it comes out that Mueller had to write him not one but two letters, you know, exoriating him for for, for being such an asshole. Um, and a liar. But let me just say this. The, the, the reason why Barr would have created a special counsel in John Durham is because there, this was such a sensitive investigation of which he had gone in front of Congress and lied. Barr did and said that they were spying on Trump's campaign, using the word spying, which is like ridiculous. But he creates a special counsel because you're supposed to have an independent uh, investigator who doesn't have any, is not influenced by anybody. So then you cut to this private plane flying the two of them to Italy for a nice little sojourn while they're across, you know, Tuscany or wherever they're going and, you know, under the auspices of investigating, uh, you know, what's going on. How is it possible 
that these two assholes are like having sipping champagne on a on a on a, a plane and doing it together. They, he never should have even been anywhere near Italy. Barr should have. If it was Durham, great, but not Barr. I, that's what I don't. No one wants to point that out. I mean, you just did. It's it's such an important detail that we're just learning. You know, Bill Barr has been out doing all these interviews, and I wonder if he'll do another one because he's now going to be asked only about this story that the yeah. New York Times broke uh, about Durham and, and Barr go to Italy. Uh, via Italia. I mean, this really should be a movie about the two of them traveling there together. Uh, Bill Barr and John Durham travel to Italy and they're just doing, you know, be- Bella Vita, all kinds of wonderful Italian things. I'm sure eating their faces off. But the fact that yeah. that that happened, that we all know, know that he's going to have to answer for that, Bill Barr. Absolutely. Yeah. They're eating a lot of cheese. It looked like they eat a lot of cheese. I'm sure that's what they're no doing. Across the- I guarantee Bill Barr has a cheese platter every afternoon served to him by a servant in his stately manner in somewhere. In <laughs> yes. Um, and, you know, the, the other thing about that is now uh, before I now I'm forgetting what I wanted to say about that. But um, so, yeah. So the, the, the oh, I remember. I have a question for you. I don't want to pimp you or anything, but like, oh. Can I even use that term? It's a, you know, pimping would be a uh, term where I, would I, I can tell you, you can use it in reference to me. Go ahead. Pimp me. Great. All right. So I'm going to ask you, if you remember, there was a reason why um, Loretta, Loretta Lynch was not really involved or had a lot of control over the investigation to Hillary's emails uh, 10 days before the election. Do you remember why? Um, uh, what's his face? The tall guy ahead of the FBI. This is my COVID brain. Um, you know. Comey. Do you remember why Comey really wouldn't let uh, Lynch be involved? Uh, he he wasn't she didn't she recuse herself from that? Yeah, well, kind of. Yeah. And, and remember why she kind of felt like she had to. I because she was because she thought it looked bad. I thought just because, because uh, she spent a, a bunch of time on a plane on a tarmac with Bill Clinton. Oh, and, r- yes, that's right. She was on the plane. She uh, Bill Clinton dirtily filthily like put her in that position by the way like she was minding her own business and and the former president just walks into her plane and that put her in a situation the moment they are alone in a room which is true of any woman who's alone in a room with bill clinton to be fair but she was the attorney general at the time and i don't think he was there for uh, anything sexually inappropriate he was there for an inappropriate suggestion Potentially, we don't know about the conversation, but your point is that she she thought that looked bad. The optics. Meanwhile, these two assholes are flying around the world. That's my, that's my point. Exactly. I'm so glad that we connected on that. And maybe that actually even made some sense, because, again, it's also a nice dichotomy between like, you know, Democrats tend to want to have a, an air of uh, of, you know, non-corruption. What's the word I'm looking for? They, they want to have ethics and there is no shame on the other side. They don't care. Uh, you know, th- that wouldn't even bother them can now. I, it's almost quaint. Can I can I give you my diatribe as to why I generally think that is? Because do you mind? I mean, I don't want to go off on too far of a tangent, but the way that Democrats and Republicans see government is the reason for that. I mean, I'm generalizing here, but Republicans see government as taking their money, that their hard-earned tax money, too much of it, and they also see government as the bank as a way to make money, as a way to get a, a contract in your local town for the development, the, the, the senior housing development. It's government money. Taxpayers pay in. There's money to be paid out if I'm working on this uh, shopping mall build or whatever. That's how they generally see government. Democrats are more likely to see government for what it is supposed to be set up for, 
to serve the public's interest, to protect people, to uh, hold people accountable for public education and transportation and clean water and so on. And that's therein lies the reason as to why we're, you know, I'm not saying Democrats aren't corrupt. Certainly Democrats have been and are corrupt. It doesn't excuse you from corruption and, and, and power and greed. It does not. It's just that how you see government's function really, really matters. If you go into it wanting to somehow make money or keep more of your money, uh, you're more likely to end up doing something. I think that's completely corrupt and antithetical to what's in the public's interest. Okay, I'm done. Okay, and I, I guess in their mind that'll also connect to this the no the the, the no sh- the shameless you know uh, uh, ignoring of any kind of ethical structure there as well, right? It's all dog eat dog world, uh, you know. Bottom line, capitalism, and that's all acceptable. Well, I think. Just, I mean, part of my, yeah. I, I think that one's simply like, I'll do whatever it takes to win. It's the ideology yeah. that we're, you and I are playing golf. You'll cheat all day to win. And I'll generally play by the rules and hope I win. But I, I can't live with myself if I cheat to win. You'll do whatever it takes to win. That, so, I mean, it's less about the economic structure or your, your, your spiritual uh, uh, journey. It's like cheating to win, anything to win. I'll kill you to win, whatever it takes. We're not playing by the well, same rules in that case. No referees. Let's let's go. And the one justification they do like to say, and it kind of gives me a little bit of a thrill in, vicariously, is that they will accuse the, the the left or the Democrats of of doing the the same stuff and and being even tougher and being more ruthless. And I and I kind of always enjoy that, even though it's so not true. <laughs> I almost wish we were that that ruthless. Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, we can we can point to examples. You're from Chicago. We can point to examples where Democrats have been ruthless and corrupt. There's no doubt about it. But like if we're talking about the mo- modern day Democrats in the House, increasingly, I would say progressive Democrats are really there in, in the public's interest. I think this young generation of women of color. I mean, I don't think that they wanted to become congressmen uh, for power. I think that they saw what was happening in their community and and they stood up and they ran for office. And I'm seeing that happen all over the country. So I I think that's definitely changing for in in so many ways, in so many positive ways. Okay, that's great, because it only serves to balance out the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Boberts and the Gates and the. Stars and the you know the murderers. Yeah, I mean they they are they are in that's that other category of whatever it takes, whatever it takes to win, to divide people, to get attention. You know, they're but they're also they do have an agenda more than anything else. I think it's Christian nationalism. I think they're they're all really, really very uh, uh, right wing evangelical white supremacists that are that are that's their agenda is focused on that anti gay, uh, anti black, patriarch. You know, uh, the the Handmaid's Tale people as i call them yes okay well that, that you're channeling jared now we're getting some of the, his his uh, hard to deny yeah. um now let's talk really briefly before we wrap up about uh an interesting case that just came up because it, again it relates to the tarmac it relates to hillary it relates to the emails and and pr- pretty much why we're here right because without comey's interference 10 days before the election you know trump probably doesn't win and then we don't have to go through this whole you know uh alternate reality for the last seven or eight years with him. But we found out that Charles McGonagall, which is a really good name, Charles McGonagall would be like in uh, in the, the Harry Potter, uh, right? He'd be one of those characters. Yeah, but I, he was arrested. I haven't been able to pronounce it. I like I, you're nailing it. Go ahead. Oh, OK. Well, if you want to ch- channel Jared more, then you need to mispronounce every name that comes across <laughs> the, the wire. 
Um, he, he, he even got uh, uh, Davos wrong the other day. Well, that shows that he's not a rich asshole. <laughs> Right. Although, wait, he was saying, Dave, was, it's Davos. Wait, is that what I was saying? Now I'm confused. No, you but you mispronounced it. But he does. I have heard Jared say Aspen with his teeth clenched. Aspen and mean it. So I'm confused now. Maybe he just likes okay. the mountains. <laughs> right. We'll have to find out how he pronounces the state where Las Vegas is in. And that'll be the decider. But um, OK, so he so McGonagall is arrested because uh, he was working for a sanctioned Russian oligarch. All you know, a guy we know, Oleg Deripaska, who keeps popping up. You know, it's kind of like the Star Wars movies where it's like one family wreaks havoc across the entire universe for decades and decades. It's amazing. Yeah. Right. It's actually I guess it's like the Bushes and the Clintons. Right. Yeah, I mean, there are always, always these families and they, they are sometimes generational, you know, cross generational. I mean, the Trumps is is a family like that now. But, yeah, there are all these Russian oligarchs are also hard to keep track of. But, yeah, Deripaska is involved with everything. He's got a re- uh, obviously a relationship with Putin and a relationship with Paul Manafort, who, who owes him money. Manafort owes Deripaska like 12 million dollars and says, how, quote, how can we make this right? And the the situation that a lot of people make is how he made it right is he gave them the the data that uh, they needed from Cambridge Analytica gathered by Cambridge Analytica to create Facebook trolls and farms directed at communities where they thought they could affect people's thinking and voting. I mean, it's a in whether or not it through the election is is hard to say, but they're. You know, there's a lot of evidence, including from 2017, even Nate Silver argued that the Comey probe disclosure cost Hillary Clinton as many as three to four percentage points and at least one percentage point, which would have flipped Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin, handing her, of course, the Electoral College. So it's you can make the argument that the Russia, you know, involvement or rather I should say the two are separate, that Comey's announcement investigating Hillary Clinton affected the election and you can also make the argument that obviously russian interference of course that there was uh, people shouldn't deny that there was russian interference with a clear goal to help trump and hurt clinton that's what the Mueller investigation found that that too had an effect on the outcome and of course Darren Posca is connected in it. And I think you're probably going to say now we find out that this fbi agent and Darren Posca had a, a, a relationship as well Oh, I, I, it gets worse because it's actually two different things. One of them got buried. But the first thing, the top line item was, yes, uh, Deripaska had hired McGonagall. But while he was an FBI agent uh, to help him get off the sanctions list, because, again, if you if you're an oligarch and your 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 worth went from like seven billion to like two billion. God, I feel that that hurts, doesn't it? You know, it when does. you lost your five billion, Pete, how how bad did you? Was that bad or is that was that okay for you? I can't I can't fathom that kind of money. Nor would I ever want it. And and I think it's disgusting that people have it. But go ahead, yes. Okay, right. Because you know, like I, have you know, know that if <laughs> some kind of financial security for my retirement, which our generation doesn't have. So go ahead. Yes. So think about that. He's paying him to get him off of the sanctions list, which is interesting because I would have thought that Trump, while he was president, would have gotten would have had that. And we did see evidence of a couple other oligarchs getting special treatment, uh, doing end arounds uh, on the sanctions anyway. But Deripaska, not so not so lucky on this one. But there's another charge that was also filed against him for taking a couple hundred thousand dollars from what appears to be an Albanian spy. And while he was also uh, an FBI agent. And so 
it, the, the interesting thing about this is that McGonagall was a, was in charge of the FBI's cyber counterintelligence coordination section, in the, and then also the New York's uh, counterintelligence division in in New York of the FBI. And what's interesting about that is that this is the sort of centerpiece of where everything grew out of the la- Anthony Weiner's laptop. Yep. And then that becomes Hunter Biden uh, is connected to that as well as part of the investigation. And it, and it also becomes um, the emails, which then come up in Comey's reopening the investigation before the election. Uh, and we know that the FBI office was the guy, what person was the, the office that was pressuring Comey into announcing that they were reopening the, the uh, investigation. So I do. Am I you know, I'm a, I love conspiracies. It, it, does it sound reasonable to assume or to think that McGonagall, since he was so willing to basically be, be, uh, be a spy while he's with the FBI? Is it unreasonable to assume he probably had some effect on what was going on with Hillary's uh Hillary sings during 2016. I, I think it's unreasonable to assume that until there is information to assume it. It's it. it You're not fun. Yeah, I know. I know. But I think that we have to be responsible. That's where I'm like a little bit less fun than like Jared or Sarah Kenzie or Rachel Maddow who would say, or even you, it, is it reasonable to assume? Because I want, I want facts. And I think that what it is reasonable is to, to have some really, important questions answered as a result of a thorough investigation. Is it reasonable to think we'll have a thorough investigation? Maybe not. It raises so many questions and those are, you know, questions that should be asked, but I don't want to jump to conclusions until we have answers or else I become a little too Tucker Carlson for me. But, but I think uh, there's just so much smoke here around this FBI agent and, taking money and who he took money from. But I am heartened by the fact that that we caught this guy. To me, I don't get as jaded and as cynical as as many people do, because I think there are a lot of good people working even in the FBI to root out corruption and spies and espionage and and, and doing what they are there, what they're supposed to be doing. I think that's probably I want to believe it's most of them. But, you know, maybe your audience will get mad at me for for believing that. No, no, it's very reasonable. I, and I really appreciate you, you know, uh, saying it that way, because, right, we need to be patient. That's why this is, you know, he committed these crimes four or five years ago. And here we finally are with an actual indictment and, you know, and charging some crimes. So this, they are very uh, methodical and they're going to make sure they have it, which part, part, partly uh, addresses what you were saying about how many um, uh, investigations Trump is part of. You know, they don't get to as far as they get now without really, really detailed, methodical investigation to make sure, which is sort of why, like, when you, when um, Garland appoints the special counsel, Jack Smith, like, if you don't get that far unless you kind of know that you have the case exactly. locked down. Exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah. You know, because but but that said, it's a nice dichotomy compared to what Barr did. Right. He let Durham go for years and they all these investigations are just going to end up just ending with a whimper with nothing. No, like yeah, you know, they I mean, got one indictment of a guy that got, uh, you know, of a lawyer who got um, uh, acquitted. And that was it. Like nothing else. Uh, and by the way, they did. Remember, you mentioned that there was uh, indication of uh, a, a, a crime that Trump committed and the Italian were trying to tell the bar. That leaked out a little bit, but if you remember, both um, Carlson and um, Hannity were trying to make it seem like whatever the revelation was was about uh, Hillary, right? And yeah, not Trump. Well, exa- exactly. And I mean, I think the Philadelphia Inquirer's Will Bunch has a great column about all of this, which ends up, you know, really wanting questions from the New York Times 
because the he, the headline is the New York Times should tell readers whether it helped crooked FBI agents get Trump elected in 2016. The arrest of a high level FBI agent on Russia tied corruption charges raises stunning new questions about how Trump really won the election. It's a very interesting column. I think that raises uh, quite a few questions about. It. I also just think that you know if we're gonna if we're gonna make certain kinds of cast casting certain aspersions uh, mine would be on bill barr and his political idealism or ideology I mean, you could argue that the attorney general has a tremendous amount of power obviously has a tremendous amount of power and we can go back and look at former attorneys general in this country and and see what their legacy is uh good bad or, or terrorist and but i think that bill barr we knew who he was after the iran contra affair when he tried to cover that whole thing up anybody who'd follow that knew how terribly corrupt he was so when of course we knew how terrible terribly corrupt he was because donald trump picked him and we saw how terribly corrupt he is as attorney general and his thing was his thing has always been nick that his biggest fear isn't the loss of democracy or anything it's the it's the progressive agenda of ideas around i think lgbt equality and feminism and and things like that even and even though he whispers certain support for him i think he is a hardcore catholic and that is what he believes, and he'll do anything to maintain, you know, the the status quo, uh, as opposed to lose to a, a quote progressive Democrat. I think that's who Bill Barr is uh, at his root, and I think that's important. And, and we have to top uh, that off with uh, an imperial presidency. And there's no question that what happened to Nixon and how the president's power was severely curtailed for a long time after that was a, a triggering thing for a lot of these guys who felt like the president was neutered and needed more power. And we saw slowly from Reagan on into Bush and the wars that, uh, that Bush uh, W pro- uh, prosecuted was that's all in direct real uh, reaction to, I think, what uh, happened to Nixon. And again, you'll see these guys say, well, you know, Nixon probably didn't deserve to have, you know, to, to have, he didn't need to resign. And if he'd had, uh, you know, Fox News then that he wouldn't have, right. uh, you know, Watergate does look kind of quaint. And the, the last piece of this puzzle, you know, is, is Carlson Tucker has been on a rant recently, kind of a real, a real vendor. And he did a thing. I don't know if you saw it about JFK and Nixon and the deep state. Yep. And um, I got to tell you, because I'm a kind of a, a JFK, you know, amateur expert on this. Everything he said about the deep state taking Nixon out was right. Um, you know, Deep Throat was number two in the FBI, Mark Felt. And he knew all the corruption that was going on in the background that that Nixon was uh, was committing and that no one knew about. So he was the backstop of democracy. And he that's why he started leaking to the you know Woodward and Bernstein. Um, and so, so there is that notion that that was what the deep state was doing back then, and to, it, but in into service, you know, uh, an anti-corruption, pro-democracy stance. And to call it the deep state has always, I feel like, been a, a, an injustice. We only just recently started using that phrase in reference to American intelligence community. I mean, and it started, I think, with Alex Jones. Like, you know, Tur- Turkey has a deep state. China has a deep state. A real powerful organized intelligence you know pakistan but the united states has independent you know individual fbi agents who come and go in powerful places no doubt about it but the idea that you know maybe you know a bunch of them in the new york office were in the bag for trump which is why they leaked to giuliani or something like that but then you've got so many other people and we, you know they've all been demonized at this point uh but there's been a whole bunch of fbi agents that did 
really important work during that time, McCabe and, and Peter Strzok and others. And they destroyed them, obviously, and fired them and destroyed their reputations and so on. Uh, but that's always been the case. Uh, you know, Al- wasn't uh, Vindman, Alex Vindman, the guy who blew the whistle on the on the on the phone call that that Trump had with Ukraine or else we never would have known about it. There there are people in powerful places that do, you know, heroic work in the in the end. And these days they get their reputation destroyed as a result. But hopefully history will see them as the whistleblowing heroes that they are. That's Absolutely. The, well, the, that's the sappy, romantic narrative that I like to believe about people yes. doing the right thing. And, and, you know, they get rewarded by cushy MSNBC and CNN, uh, you know, jobs, which, by the way, they deserve. They're not because they're cushy. experts. They're not that. Uh, okay. I've, I've had them all. They, 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 you know, a one-year contract uh, does not buy you a house. But you know, yeah, I hear you. Okay. I take your point. Fair enough. And, and and they absolutely deserve to be in those positions because they are the they are experts and really know more this than stuff. I did. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, Andrew Weissman is now a congressman uh, based on on his work with the impeachment. So uh, uh, no question, not, uh, not Weissman. Um, you mean? Oh, uh, what did I say? The, the oh. I'm thinking. Oh, I'm forgetting his name. Uh, Andrew Goldman. No, Ullman. Was the, Ullman, yeah. Is it, yeah. Anyway, forgive me. Uh, yes, uh, that's who it was. Uh, but Weissman is actually on MSNBC or one of those two. So he yeah. gets his yeah. he gets it there. Um, so uh, that is uh, I think we we saw I don't do we solve any problems. I'm not so sure, but I think we coalesce the vapor of uh, human existence a little bit here. <laughs> no, it was great. This is a great conversation. We covered a lot of ground about all of these different things that are happening and really hard to keep track of uh, as they take place over, you know, generations, much less just the last, last few years. I think we did a pretty good job of, of coalescing it all together and, and certainly giving our, giving our take. I think uh, Jared's going to really be, have a hard time coming back uh, to the seat, having uh, my brilliance take, take the place. Yeah. It, it's, it'll be very difficult. I will have to do my best to, 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 you know, get get his uh, confidence back but don't worry uh how can people find you by the way while that uh, before we wrap up well i haven't written as many books as jared that's for damn sure just my podcast i do a daily podcast where i talk with the smartest people i can find new guests each day about important issues that uh help hopefully that are in the public's interest and help you lead a an a, a life that you can understand what the hell is happening in the world and in your own life as well. Cause we talk about a lot of personal stuff too. Absolutely. Well, it's a great show. Everybody definitely has to listen to it as much as they can. Uh, you know, every day, man, that's a grind, uh, big respect to be I able to do it. that. Thank you, man. I love it. It's the, pretty much the only thing I do. My, my daughters are teenagers now and I'm, I, I, I built the shed that I do podcasts out of it and I absolutely love it. So hopefully I can, I can keep it going cause it's really uh, very fulfilling. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Pete, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you all for listening to our show here. I and uh, say, go buy The Midnight yes. Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis by Jared Yates Sexton. Great book. I, I started, have you, I've started reading it. I don't know if you have. Yes, um, and it's a, yes. I, I believe that the term is a page turner, um, and it, it spurns. I was taking notes just because my, my mind had, it was starting racing with ideas at, from coming directly from his text. It really is a terrific book. Everyone should get it where they can get any. Your, yeah, it was uh, just kind of fun, I think, probably for both of us to be talking with Jared regularly throughout the researching of this book. And you just you talk to me like, oh, I've been, I've been researching history all day. And, you know, it's kind of like you saw him doing the work. And now to see it out is really, really uh, amazing. So. Congrats. Absolutely. absolutely. Well, 
Well, Pete, thanks again uh, for joining us and everybody else out there. And uh, stay tuned. We'll be back again for our uh, Friday Weekender episode on Patreon, which will get part of it as a uh, as a freebie on the, uh, an Apple podcast or wherever else you get them. And uh, as Jared would tell everybody, stay safe out there.